had an interesting experience this week. Uh, it's one I've been having quite a bit lately, uh, and it's making me rethink uh, some things. I've I've always uh, felt like there are times when you're going to say something that everybody's heard, everybody knows. Why are you saying it? Um, and I left out a part in a class. It's actually a theology class. It's among some of our sharpest students. And I, um, I mentioned the parable of the tares and the wheat. And I got blank stares. And I actually had to sit down <laughs> kind of reflect on that. Uh, the, the biblical illiteracy that's happening even among Christians is uh, staggering to me. Um, And I'm not quite sure what is bringing it about, but I'm pretty convinced that uh, in the 1950s when I was a child, that even people who weren't churchgoers uh, had a pretty good working knowledge of biblical content. And now that's not even true among people who are active Christians. And I, I, it, it makes me just want to scream about we need to be reading the text, looking at the text, studying the text, doing the text, and really and memorizing the text. And I think that's part of it. The uh, lack of memorization uh, may be a, a, a big part of it. We have Bibles in our hands and on our shelves and in our uh, tablets and on our phones, uh, but not in our heart, and uh, I think we need that. Uh, Next week, I intend to begin a series on music and song and worship, Uh, and in that series, we're going to look at the uh, hymnal, the psalms, and how music is uh, part of uh, this faith that uh, that we hold. I think it's going to be a fun series. I'm hoping that we will be able to uh, do some of the songs and the hymns that we haven't done, uh, talk about their background. Um, I'm not quite sure how well that will work in a recorded setting, uh, and so we'll have to decide whether we record it and, and put it out, or I do a little brief intro thing that, that's recorded, and then we make most of it the Q&A and the discussion. Uh, which is the direction I'm leaning at this point. Um, but today I want to uh, uh, address a subject that is part of the lectionary passages for this week, uh, at least in the Western churches. And I've titled it The Law of the Lord. Uh, I, I really want to deal with a, a misunderstanding. And I think this is important as we are in the... Uh, Uh, season of Lent, which we call the season of the cross. Because I think that a lot of people think that the law of the Lord, the Torah, if you will, uh, and the cross are at odds with each other. So the law is about legalism, and the cross is about grace. Uh, But that's a false dichotomy. That's That's not really what's going on. And when you do that, and many people in this hyper grace uh, culture that we live in um, uh, confuse that. And then, of course, the danger is to swing back into a legalism uh, based on the commandments of God uh, that, in a set, 
in a sense, undermines the message of the cross. So the, the question is, what's the relationship between these two? Uh, and so I want us to look at Romans chapter 7. I, I, I was struggling. Uh, one of the passages for this week is Romans 7. And one of them is Psalm 19. And uh, it's fascinating to me that, that the church, even with its replacement theology that, that's always a struggle in there, was able to tie these passages together in the readings which in some sense, if you are aware of them, I don't mean you just read them because it's the week to read them, but if you're really aware of them, uh, it, it becomes significant. Now, uh, let me remind you, because it's been a long time since we've been in Romans, that I believe that Romans is, for the most part, a commentary by Paul on the broad uh, meaning of the Scriptures and certainly of salvation, he makes incredible use of the book of Genesis, of the Psalms, of Ecclesiastes, of uh, uh, Hosea, he, Deuteronomy. He's quoting scripture constantly. The book of Romans is, if you, if you know the entire scriptures... The book of Romans is just an echo and a commentary on that entire thing. When you read the book of Romans, if you read it as a separate book and not as somebody who is incredibly versed in Scripture, uh, pulling it together and making some statements, you really will misunderstand uh, uh, what's going on. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul... uh, says these words in the first six verses, and I'm using that because the actual reading is around verse 12 and 13. I'll get to that, but I have to go to to Psalm 19 first. Uh, But I want you to see the context. Uh, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So notice that Paul is not assuming he's dealing with unversed believers. He he believes that these people uh, know the scriptures, understand the scriptures, and particularly the law of God. So he's not writing to these, you know, some new convert. He's not writing to Romans who don't know. These are, many of them Jews, many of them God-fearers. These people know the scriptures. I am speaking to those who know the law, that, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, and if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, even though she joins to another man. Now, they would understand this principle. They would understand uh, the issue of being uh, joined to the law and then being uh, married to another person when your spouse is alive versus when your spouse is dead. They, they would understand that's not a controversy. It's not a contradiction. It, it makes sense if you know the, the way the system works. Then he says, 
Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who raised you from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, it'd be very easy, and I think uh, a serious problem, to think that we were made to die to the Torah as if we're now going to join another and, and the Torah is dead. That's not what he's talking about. And, and here the New American Standard capitalizes law and we don't know yet what law he's talking about. We're going to see that he's talking about a different law that is in the way of obeying this law. And that is the purpose of this chapter. But if you don't read the whole chapter and if you don't know what Paul's view of the law is. And that's why many times when Paul's talking about this, he says, do we get rid of the law? No, we establish the law. Is the law evil? No, it's good. He keeps trying to say, you, you need to understand there's a real tight nuance here that he's trying to address. So he says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the Torah were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So what shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. So his, his struggle here is not with the law. There's another problem that is going to require a death and a reconnecting uh, that he is going to talk about later. But I want you to get a sense of the law and why Paul is not down on the law. We should not be down on the Torah. We should not be uh, dichotomizing it quite that way. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19. Again, a passage for reading for today. Uh, and a beautiful, uh, beautiful passage. Uh, one that I would like to say most people have memorized, but I'm afraid to say that anymore uh, after my recent experiences uh, with people and, and the text. Uh, the passage for reading picks up at verse 7. So I'd like you to uh, look at verse 7 of 119. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are, right, they are altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. For who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart 
be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, one, I remember as a child, not even a believer, learning that verse. Uh, I was taught it in public school. <laughs> uh, it's a different world. Uh, and I'm an old man <laughs> in that sense. Um, so, I want you to look at these statements said about uh, the Lord. This is why Paul keeps going, Do we, are we setting aside the law? No, 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 because the law is good. Are we, are we, uh, are, are we, is the law sin? No. God forbid. I mean, he just keeps doing it because he's really trying to talk about a different problem. And the problem's not with the Torah. The problem's not with the commandments of God. The problem is not with uh, these things that God has given. So, uh, we'll look at this again. He begins with the law of the Lord is perfect. This word perfect means complete, means full. It means without error, if you will, without flaw. The, the Torah given to Israel through Moses is not an incomplete uh, thing. It's not missing something important that has to be replaced. It restores the soul as water and food uh, restores our body. Uh, so in some sense, we need to be feeding on the word of the Lord. We need to be reading this. We need to be understanding it. Will it, will it make us aware of our sin? It will make us aware of our sin. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay? When I step on a scale, it makes me aware of my weight. Sometimes I like what it says. Often I don't. Okay? But the idea is that knowledge is not a problem and there's nothing wrong with the scale. Though I often think it's not calibrated right. Okay? Uh, the Torah, in that sense, can be a reflection of where we are, but, but it's, it's not a problem with it. The problem is with the one stepping on the scale, if you will. Uh, so... This idea of the law of the Lord being perfect reminds me of Paul when he says that this scripture is God-breathed. And it's, it's good for correction and for reproof and instruction in righteousness. That we may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so uh, it's an important thing for us to know uh, the law of the Lord. Secondly, he says, the testimony of the Lord. I... For a long time, I ignored that term. The Bible talks about the testimony of the Lord. And we use the word testimony um, uh, in Christianity as my salvation experience. There's nothing wrong with that. It is your testimony. It's what happened to you. What testimony is to tell what happened to you or what you saw, what you witnessed. That's fine. But the scripture is the testimony of God. Our knowledge of God comes from this testimony. Now, if you lost a relative, and most of us have, and you found a journal that they had written or somebody who knew them over their entire life wrote a biography of them, you would certainly read it. And you know them. We get our knowledge of 
who God is in these scriptures and in the acts that he did and in the stories that are told about him because the Torah itself is predominantly commandments and narrative. And the narrative is always the interaction of God with his people and his creation. And knowing God is to know that story of God and what he's doing. So the, the, uh, the testimony of the Lord is certain. It's trustworthy. It's dependable. This statement about who God is and what he does can be trusted. And therefore, Paul can say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The truth is, we don't know God independent of the word. It is our knowledge. It's why I'm a text guy. This I know came from God. This I know came from God. All the other stuff that we talk about, maybe. But this is sure. This is certain. This is where you can stand. You know? Uh, Standing on the promises, right? The idea of this is God's word and therefore... It tells me who he is. This is who God is. Well, I think God is like, good for you. I, I'm happy you think about God. But this is who he is, right? So the testimony of the Lord is sure and can be trusted. And let me say, because I'm very concerned about this. We have gone from the God of the Bible, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Moses, the God of the Jews. We've gone from that God to this kind of, to whom it may concern, there is just one God, so there he is, and he's just out there. And that concerns me greatly. Bring up your children To know that the God that we serve is the God of this text. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's the God of Israel and the God of us. But it's got to be focused that way, not just God somewhere. Uh, That that is becoming more and more common. It it makes me uh, quite concerned. Then the scripture says here, the law of the Lord... Uh, The precepts of the Lord are right. Uh, Precepts. Interesting term. Uh, Precepts are things that have been arranged. Things, what this Hebrew word means. That uh, that things have been set in place. Uh, It made me think as I was looking at this of the arranged times of the Lord. The holy days. If you think about the holy days, the holy days give us the story of God. The the holy days of Leviticus 23 establish God delivering Israel, giving them the commandments, and uh, making atonement. I mean, all of that story of God is there. And the church following suit, uh, Jesus' life overlaps that Passover with the death, burial, and resurrection the giving of the Spirit overlapping the giving of the law, and and He is our High Priest. So what we end up with is both the narrative of God's purpose and the person of the one whom He sent, 
being fulfilled in that context. And each year as we go through this, each year as we think about it, each year as we reinforce it, we are being uh, calibrated again to the context of the of the of the precepts of God, and knowing His precepts are important for getting uh, direction and balance in our life. And so, these things established by the Lord are right, uh, and they uh, bring promise and the purpose of God known to us. And the result of that, this scripture says, is they rejoice the heart. I have I, when I started. Uh, following the uh, the holy days, uh, I began to have a joy in them that I didn't expect. Um, they're a lot of work. There's a lot of work to get ready for these things. These the services. I know a lot of people just come and enjoy them and go. But if you if you have to set up, if you have to organize the liturgy, if you have to get things ready, and you have to do it, and you you know people are watching that you're doing it, you're right. You, there, there's a lot that makes you go, oh, here they come again. You know, it's Holy Week. Oh. And I remember many years ago when we were trying to follow the Jewish Eastern and Western calendar, I think we had three Passovers that year. And we were, every week was Holy Week, you know. And I was just worn out. And yet there was a, a joy that came out of doing them. I always leave tired and joyful that I now have been reinforced in those precepts of God. And so the, the precepts of the Lord are right. And they, they, they do bring joy to the heart. Then he says the, the commandments. Oh boy, the commandments. You know, The commandments of the Lord or the command. He says it one thing. The commandment of the Lord. He doesn't say commandments, but you get it. It would include them all. Is pure. This word pure we are really losing uh, the sense of what it is. So again, teach your children what pure means. Uh, pure means that uh, it is all one thing. It doesn't have mixed motives. Mixed motives are impure. Okay, I'm, I'm giving this money to you because I want to... Support your uh, your uh, nonprofit, but I'm hoping that I'll get the prize that you're raffling off. That's mixed motives, okay? And it's the way our culture does every kind of fundraising. Our fundraising is to get you to go to this thing, get you to run in something, get you to do something and raise the money, and you go more. You know, are you going because you really want that disease to be dealt with, or are you going because you want to enjoy the thing? And the answer is yes. You're doing. It's not that you're picking one over the other, but that's not what purity is. So if you get a can or a jar and it says pure orange juice, then there should be nothing in there but orange juice. That's the idea of purity. Okay. Purity is the idea that we, we used to talk about pure gold, right? The idea of pure uh, with the commandments is that God's commandments don't have mixed motives. He's not saying, how can I cramp somebody's style and do... God's, God's commandments are 
clear. He wants to bring glory to himself and he wants us to be blessed in that process. And so his giving of the commandments are not some impure motive or mixed motive uh, that's going on. They are for our good and the scripture says here they enlighten the eyes uh, and the idea of that is that we now can see clear as to go. What does the scripture say? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, We have all walked in darkness and tripped over something in the dark. Some of us don't like that very much and it angers us and other people just feel foolish because they tripped on something. But very few people trip in the light. Now, we can trip in the light, we can miss something, but you know what I'm talking about. You're much more likely to trip in the dark than in the light. The commandments of God are like candles. And the more of them you know, the lighter your path is in terms of how to walk. And so he says it enlightens the eye. The fear of the Lord, he says, is clean. Interesting term. Uh, Enduring forever. To acknowledge that God is creator and judge gives us pause. If God created me and God is my judge, then I know that God judges righteous judgment. Uh, but I'm not all that righteous, and so that makes me nervous. I, that, I've told you before, the verse that says, we will give an answer for every idle word is not one of my favorite verses. I would rather that verse wasn't there, because I'm on the 91 freeway a lot, not as much as before. I'm a little more sanctified now, but it's only lack of opportunity, not because I've gone through spiritual growth. You know, uh, So the idea here is that We acknowledge that, God, uh, because to go against him or to act as if he's not there is foolishness. Uh, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, You ought to be afraid of that which can bring out judgment. And the Lord can judge us. And so... Uh, We are to do that. Now it says that he's clean. The idea of clean in the scriptures is the difference between holiness and God's purpose versus common use. And that's really important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the pathway of the fear of the Lord to understanding and to wisdom is the pathway of holiness. It's a holy path. It's a purpose of God to walk in His way and to be His people, not to walk our own way. And and that common way of walking is not necessarily evil. It's just not God's purpose. Um, And I talk about this in classes a lot when I talk about holiness. Uh, When I was a kid, um, my mom had a special set of dishes that were only for company. They were holy dishes. They had one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to match when company came to our house. Now, company very seldom came to our house. Occasionally, 
family would come, but out came those special dishes. One day, when my sister and I were actually getting along, that was a rare occasion, uh, we were uh, playing in the backyard, and for some reason at that point in our life, and I, we must have been, oh, she was probably five and I was coming up on eight. Okay, so it's that age. And we had discovered that there was a particular dirt in our backyard that if you mixed it with water, it was almost like clay. And we could make little items. And I had made a piece of clay that looked like a chicken leg. And we got the great idea that we would make a whole banquet of mud food. <laughs> and so Vicky and I made little peas and carrots and chicken legs and chicken necks and all the stuff that we ate and we decided we needed dishes. So we went into the house and got the holy dishes and brought them out and put our mud food on them. And then I broke one of the dishes. So there was double trouble. We had used the dishes for an unholy purpose. And made them unclean with our mud food. And I had broken one which meant they don't all match. So my mom had me lick green stamps and blue stamps for hours to put in the little, some of you know what I'm talking about, in the things to go down to the redemption center, salvation center, to get another plate. To this day, I don't go near any woman's, especially even my wife's, special dishes to use for any purpose unless they say to me, bring those down and put them here because I don't want to lick stamps ever again. I don't even like postage stamp licking. Um, I licked a lot of stamps for that. Um, and that was my mom. She was the nice parent. Uh, uh, you know, I won't tell you about the time I did the bow and arrow stuff on the uh, garage and I didn't hit the target. So all the holes in the side of the garage were everywhere except the round area where I'm lucky to be alive uh, in that one. Yeah. So, uh, the idea of clean is the idea of holy and walking in the way that God has intended it to be. And, and He's intended for us to be holy. The Bible says, let us pursue holiness without which no one will see God. And, and so, not only do we walk in the commandments of God that are righteous, 
But we walk in the fear of the Lord to be holy uh, uh, unto Him because that holiness will endure forever. We will always be kadosh unto the Lord in that context. And then finally, uh, he says here, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether or altogether righteous. When God makes a decision, his decision is uh, true. His decision is good. His verdict is according to truth and completely right and good. And we can trust uh, the judge of the whole earth to do right. Now that's easier to say than to actually believe. Um, I, I really struggle with the loss of Braden. And yet I know that God does all things well. And that in the context of all things, the decision not to hear our cries for mercy was a right decision. I don't get that. But I trust it. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, how do I know that? I know that only by the word of God. My experience doesn't get that at all. So I cling to the scriptures. I don't want a doctrine that rips part of the scriptures away from me uh, uh, under the guise that all I need is the cross. Thank God for the cross. But the scriptures are good. So he says... These things are more valuable than gold. They're better than honey. They have value. They warn us of harm. Many of the commandments keep us from shooting ourselves with great disaster. And there is reward and blessing in obeying them. So that's Paul's view of, of, the, uh, of the Torah. So it's important that you see that when we read this passage in Romans. So back to Romans chapter 7. In in verse 12, Paul says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We've just seen from the Psalms where that is. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Well, the Torah set a standard I can't live with, and so there's something wrong with the Torah. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be uh, sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, Paul's about to give his explanation of what we've been freed from so that we can follow another. And it's not this. It's not the Torah. It's another law. Okay. So he says in verse 14, We know that the Torah or the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. 
For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. I love the law and the commandments. I get it. I can't get there, but I get it. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, boy, I wish that thing was gone. I wish somebody would get that law off my back. There, that, he's got that in him, but that's not coming from his mind. That's coming from his flesh. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For to, the willing is present in me. I'm willing to obey God. But the doing of the good is not in me. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. If I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a principle. The word there is nomos. It's the same word for law. I find then a law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully, remember, joy comes out of the commandment, out of the door. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That spiritual part of me, that inner man, wants it. You know, I, I ask people in counseling all the time, if I could give you a pill, and that pill would cause you to never sin, would you take it? Now, there are some people that go, oh, I don't know if I'd take it. Because they're still bound by the deceitfulness of their sin, thinking that it's fun. Okay? But those who have lived a while and seen the repercussions say, you got one of those pills? I'll take it right now. Right? That's that inner man. That's, you know, let me out of this. He says, I concur with the law of God in the inner man. Notice they put a small L there. This, it's very inconsistent, this capital L, little L. Ignore that in all translations. NASB is pretty good, but we really blew it on this one. But I see a different law in my, the members of my body, waging against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, law, 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 law. What's he talking about? There is the law of God. It is holy, it is pure, it is true, it is trustworthy, it is good. And in my mind, I want that. And I want other people doing it. Because it's good for me if they obey, right? I want that. But there's another law in me. And that law can't stand this. And so every time this says something, that law goes, no! And you know this at Lent. Whatever you said, I'm giving up for Lent. Your flesh said, you want to bet. The minute you try to curb the flesh, it rises up and says, no, there's a law of sin and death. This is not the law of sin and death. This is the law of life. But the law of sin and death in our flesh rises up so that we can't do that. So he says, but I, I, that different law is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, who's going to set us free? That's the cross. 
But the cross doesn't set us free from this. The cross sets us free from this. And that's what's misunderstood by many, many believers. It is not free from the law, oh happy condition. It's free from this law, what a happy condition. Now, when will we be free from this law? Was it done at the cross? A lot was done at the cross. But a lot that was done at the cross isn't done. When it's done, we will go through a resurrection. And when we are raised from the dead, we won't have that old law. And therefore, Paul's argument in chapter 7 is there's got to be a death. Not a death of the law, not a removal of the law, but a death of our flesh and the sin that's there. So I want you to look at uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of The resurrection of Christ and the spirit that's now going to empower us and enable us to walk closer to God is going to mitigate against the law of sin and death. And he's going to talk about that for a long time. We don't have time today. Uh, But I I want you to look at verse 3. This is a verse you should have memorized. For what the law could not do, what this... Torah could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh. Okay? This can't bring salvation. It's just the way of living. But I can't do it. So he says that the, what the law could not do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn the Torah. He condemned this law of sin in our flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, he is not saying what God did was, he did this so that you can ignore the Torah. He says, now, as you follow the Spirit, you will be coming closer in obedience to this. Now, when will we fully be in obedience to this? In the resurrection. That's the pill. The pill that we have to take is the death of our flesh. And so Paul is going to say to them, live as if your flesh is dead. Follow the Spirit. The Spirit will lead you in, com- in complete obedience to this. That's the direction He's taking you. You'll, you'll wobble with it because the old man will rise up, crucify him and your passions, and live in a day where you do that. Which is why I love this time of Lent. Lent. Not Lent. <laughs> Lent's that stuff in your pockets. Lent. The idea is this. We become aware during this time of the struggle of our flesh by the fasting and the things that we do. And in that context, we long more for the cross and the resurrection. The cross without resurrection has no power. The, the 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so this is really important. So for me, this year, I decided I had to focus differently. I'm not doing the typical giving something up and fighting my flesh that way. Because one of the things I know is that when I try to give up things, my body fights me. TV starts advertising all of those things. Uh, uh, they become the main course on the menus. Uh, that, that's what happens. It, there's a conspiracy against me. You may not have that problem, but I do. And, and I then am so focused on it that I almost can't think. Now look at, look at verse um, 5 of, of chapter 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And he tells why. So I thought this year I've got to do something that reinforces for me the following of the Spirit and the life that I am trying to live. And so I decided that I would focus on one thing that I've always done during Lent, but I am doing it more uh, directly and I'm making it my only focus. And I just, I'm, I'm doing this as an example for you, not to say you should do this. Uh, I am donning a cross. You know the tzitzit that, that the Jews are required to, to wear to remind them of the commandments of God? I've always struggled with how, what's the Christian tzitzit, okay? And uh, uh, there are Christians that wear those. I don't believe that we should do that. that that's for Israel under that covenant. Uh, but at, in my reading, I found that what has been historically true is Christians wearing a cross. Now, somewhere I'm out in the open, uh, I, and there's a debate with tzitzit whether they should be worn out in the open or worn privately. Um, and, and the wearing of them privately is a reminder to you, a wearing of them outside is a, uh, a, a threat of a problem. Jesus said the, they enlarge their phylacteries and their tzitzit, right, to be seen of men. So I don't want to do this to be seen of men, but I need to be reminded. And so in the morning, uh, when I put the cross on, and then obviously it's not showing. I quote the passage from Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live. The life which today I will live. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. That my mind might be placed on the things of the spirit. And that I will walk in them. Now, why that? You all have done this. You have, when you know that lunch is an hour. Well, you may be feeling it right now. Well, he shut up so we can go to lunch, right? And all of a sudden, that's the only thought in your mind. On the other hand, you have worked, working on a project, doing something. And somebody said, hey, it's 3.30. Did you eat lunch? And you go, didn't even think about it, right? 
when your mind is on something else, the flesh doesn't rise up. So the idea is, at this time of Lent, we should be focusing on spiritual things. Self-denial for the benefit of others. That's why the benefit of others, the mindset of that, is better than the mindset of denial. Because denial is on, what am I denying? But in what am I doing to help another is focused on the other way and the way of the Spirit. You see how that works? Paul is not opposed to the commandments of God. They are good and they are holy and they are clean. They are wonderful. He knows our problem is us. And the problem of us is fixed by the cross. And it is in death, burial, and resurrection that we see what Jesus is saying when he says, If any man will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. Let's pray.